It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this family's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sexual assault, drug use, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Most days, Tex Watson didn't have a care in the world. He had Charlie to tell him what to do, and Charlie knew everything. So Tex never had to worry about whether he was making the right choice or the wrong one. Tex also had access to a steady stream of marijuana and LSD. Charlie encouraged it, which meant that the drugs were good. But Tex had curiosities about heavier things too. So when it was offered by Charlie, he readily swallowed a chunk of belladonna root. But the trip didn't relax him or open his mind. Instead, he felt unhinged, filled with panic, paranoia, and anger. All of his senses seemed distorted. He couldn't be sure of what he was seeing or feeling. It was the middle of the day, but darkness enveloped him. It was as if a malevolent evil was trying to warm its way into his body. Tex let the evil in. There was nothing he could do to resist it. He began to lose consciousness. He could only hope that when he woke up, he would feel normal again. But it was a dim hope. Tex suspected that he had changed himself irrevocably. The evil was part of him now. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, What manipulates our relationships into deadly results? In this episode, we'll explore how Charles created the group known as the Manson Family, how they began as a strange but seemingly benign group of outcasts, and how they transformed into a ruthless band of criminals. Next week, we'll discuss the infamous murders the group carried out, the police investigations, and the trials that followed their crime spree. This episode is part of ParCast Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, 
a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new Parcast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Few names in history carry as much notoriety as Charles Manson's. When he died in 2017, after spending nearly 50 years in prison, news of his passing made international headlines. From what we know about Manson, that's exactly what he would have wanted. From the time he was a young man, Charles Manson craved fame and attention. Initially, he believed his celebrity would come from being the world's biggest rock star, bigger than his idols, the Beatles. Instead, he was notorious for orchestrating some of the most heinous murders in American history. But it wasn't just his crimes that drew infamy. It was his ability to attract a loyal cult of followers who were so devoted, they were willing to kill for him. Charles Mills Manson, born in November of 1934, was without a family for most of his life. In many ways, the creation of his cult following was determined many years before he found his way to hate Ashbury. His mother, 15-year-old Kathleen Maddox, was never married to Charles's biological father. Any subsequent relationships didn't last for long. Charles was shuttled between his grandmother and his aunt as Kathleen tried to find her footing. When Charles was only five, Kathleen was sent to prison for stealing a car, and he was sent to live with family in McMechan, West Virginia. His aunt and uncle, Glenna and Bill Thomas, remember Charles's three-year stay as a difficult time for their family. Charles was impervious to punishment. His uncle Bill said that he acted however he wanted, and no threat of a whipping could make him behave. Before I continue with Charles's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. The Thomas's memories of Charles reveal a pattern of antisocial behavior often used to diagnose conduct disorders in children. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders notes that problem behaviors may start as young as the age of three. These children often show defiance towards adults, blame others for things that have gone wrong, and provoke others. Charles displayed all of these tendencies during his time in McMechan. Perhaps most frightening was Charles's obsession with knives. His cousin Joanne recalled a terrifying instance when she was left in charge of seven-year-old Charles. He was pestering Joanne as she cleaned the house, so she sent him outside. Moments later, she looked up to see Charles standing on the other side of the screen door, wielding a sickle he'd found in the yard, slashing at the screen. His expression was so deranged, Joanne thought he might have killed her if her parents hadn't returned just then to stop him. 
When Charles's mother, Kathleen, was paroled in 1942, the Thomases were glad to return seven-year-old Charles to her. But his defiant behavior continued. Charles skipped school, shoplifted, and lied about it. He was never ashamed and never repentant for his bad behavior. The DSM-5 noted that between the ages of 7 and 11, antisocial behaviors intensify in children with conduct disorders. At this age, the children are more prone to lying, stealing, and rule-breaking as they gain more independence from their caretakers. Kathleen hoped a firmer hand might straighten Charles out, so in 1947, when Charles was 12, Kathleen sent him to the Jabalt School for Boys, a boarding school for male delinquents in Terre Haute, Indiana. He ran away from Jabalt the next year in 1948. Within weeks, he was caught burglarizing stores in Indianapolis and was sent to a juvenile facility in Omaha, Nebraska. It started a pattern of incarceration, escape, and reincarceration. Throughout 1947 and 1954, Charles was placed in and escaped from a reform school in Indiana, the National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C., and finally, a maximum security prison in Chillicothe, Ohio. He was always recaptured as a result of escalating criminal behavior, such as stealing cars and armed robbery. Charles fits the textbook pattern of antisocial behaviors typical of childhood conduct disorders. The DSM-5 states that adolescents are likely to intensify their rule-breaking through truancy, running away, assault, robbery, vandalism, and stealing cars. Medical professionals note that a high proportion of children and young people with conduct disorders grow up to be antisocial adults. Charles was by no means reformed, but he managed to get his worst impulses under control at Chillicothe. He was released in the spring of 1954 at the age of 19. Surprisingly, he returned to McMechan, West Virginia to live with his aunt, uncle, and grandmother. His mother, Kathleen, had remarried and Charles didn't like her new husband. At his grandmother's request, Charles regularly attended church. He wasn't a believer, but he enjoyed several Bible passages, especially in the book of Revelation, and he committed many to memory. But his time outside of institutions was short-lived. In 1955, Charles stole a car and drove to Los Angeles to see Kathleen. He was promptly arrested by a police officer whose suspicions were raised by the out-of-state license plate. In April of 1956, Charles was sentenced to serve three years at San Pedro's Terminal Island Penitentiary in Los Angeles Harbor. In prison, Charles encountered all types of lawbreakers, but he seemed most enamored with the pimps. He was enthralled by their stories of seducing young, vulnerable women and turning them into obedient sex workers. They explained how to pick out women with low self-esteem, separate them from friends and family, and finally, alternate between showing the women affection and violence. This combination of love and fear were powerful tools to exercise control over their victims. Charles liked the idea of exerting control over people. This may be why he enrolled in a prison course based on Dale Carnegie's best-selling book, 
how to win friends and influence people. Charles had never shown any aptitude for education before, but he excelled in a class that affirmed his instincts for manipulation. The most important lesson he gleaned from the course was how to make someone do what you wanted. The trick was to make them think it was their own idea. The research of cognitive psychologist Elizabeth Loftus suggested that it is relatively easy to implant an idea in another person's mind. Simply asking leading questions can shape another person's response and even create false memories of events. Charles was thrilled to learn how susceptible the human mind was to outside influence and how easily he could exploit that. 23-year-old Charles was released in September of 1958. With few job prospects, he decided to become a pimp. He seduced 19-year-old Leona Ray Musser with the aim of convincing her to enter sex work. Leona, eager to please, went along with it until his probation officer caught on. Charles was soon back in federal court, facing charges, but he had Leona by his side. Leona had never met anyone like Charlie. When he spoke to her, he acted as if she were the only thing that mattered and told her that she was the prettiest girl he'd ever seen. He trusted her and he needed her to look out for him, just like he did for her. How could she not love someone who made her feel so special and desirable? She would do anything for Charlie. Now was her chance to prove it. She thought about what she was going to say to the judge. If she could strike the right tone and get the judge on her side, she would keep Charlie out of prison and they could stay together and be happy. The courtroom was quiet. Everyone was watching her, the lawyers, the parole officers, and Charlie. Leona let out a quavering sigh and began to talk about how she and Charlie were in love and how they were going to get married. Then she told the judge that she was pregnant with Charlie's baby. It was a lie, but she didn't feel guilty. She was only helping Charlie. As she wrapped up her speech, Leona let tears fall from her eyes. She began to sob. Charlie said that if she made herself look helpless, the judge would take pity. Charlie was right. Leona's plaintive speech before the court worked, and the judge placed Charles on probation rather than sending him back to prison. But Charles continued forging checks and pimping out Leona. In June of 1960, 26-year-old Charles was sentenced to another 10 years in prison. During this stint, he discovered Scientology. He may have been drawn to the way the Scientology leaders convince converts to surrender individuality and completely give in to the ideology. With the explosive arrival of the Beatles in 1964, Charles also became obsessed with music. He was fascinated by Beatlemania. More than anything, Charles wanted a legion of admirers to love him as much as the Beatles. He had always loved listening to the radio. As a child, he'd had an ear for plunking out songs on his aunt's piano. He convinced his mother to send him a guitar, took music lessons from fellow inmates, and performed in prison variety shows. Other inmates gave lackluster praise, 
calling him a decent singer capable of playing a few chords. But Charles was convinced he was a genius. Prison staff encouraged his devotion to music as it distracted him from causing trouble. On March 21, 1967, 32-year-old Charles Manson was released early from prison, but he felt aimless without the constant supervision he'd grown accustomed to after 20 years in and out of various institutions. While he mulled over his future, he asked his parole officer for permission to leave Los Angeles. He wandered north to Berkeley, California. In the 1960s, college campuses were exploding in protests against the war, racial inequality, and social injustice. UC Berkeley was at the center of radical protest after 1964, when students staged a free speech demonstration that resulted in nearly 800 arrests and attracted the scorn of California Governor Ronald Reagan. At the same time, the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood in San Francisco was the epicenter of the counterculture movement, a place where hippies experimented with drugs, free love, and communal life. Both the revolutionaries of Berkeley and the flower children of San Francisco received national attention. Young people everywhere were drawn to the unconventional lifestyle they'd seen on the news or read about in magazines. By 1967, the Bay Area was packed with gurus, preachers, and revolutionaries, and there was no shortage of impressionable young people ready to fall under the influence of an inspiring leader. And so when Charles Manson arrived, having trained under pimps and Scientologists alike, his future followers were ripe for the picking. We'll see how Charles collected his first family members after this. Now back to the story. When 32-year-old Charles Manson arrived in San Francisco in 1967, the summer of love was in full swing. Everyone who migrated to the city had come with one purpose, to learn how to think in a new way. Charles was happy to educate them. 23-year-old Mary Bruner was like thousands of other young people who flocked to California for a chance at an exciting new life. She worked in the UC Berkeley library and met Charles while he was hanging out around campus playing guitar. Mary had only recently moved to Berkeley from Wisconsin and she hadn't yet made any friends. Upon their first meeting, Charles teased her, trying to get a rise out of her. Her temper flared until she realized he was purposefully trying to goad her. Then she laughed and dropped her guard. Charles coaxed his way into her home and essentially became her freeloading houseguest. Their relationship wasn't immediately sexual, but Charles would sometimes bring other women back to her apartment to sleep with them. Eventually, she became jealous of the other women. In order to compete for Charles's affections, Mary began to sleep with him too. Charles was happy to take Mary to bed, though he didn't stop collecting other women. Like 18-year-old Lynette Fromey, Lynette had a troubled history of drug abuse and self-harm. She ran away from home after an argument with her father. Charles was naturally drawn to vulnerable people he could manipulate, women who were desperate to be loved. When Charles saw Lynette crying on the boardwalk, he stopped 
and told her she looked like she needed a friend. He easily persuaded her to come back with him to Berkeley. Charles now had his second follower. He didn't stop there. Charles picked up another woman, Pat Krenwinkle, after enticing her away from the home she shared with her drug-addicted sister. Then he added 20-year-old Susan Atkins, whose life had taken a rough turn since she had lost her mother to cancer five years prior. The women were thrilled to be part of Charles's group. Pat wrote a letter to her father stating that, For the very first time in my life, I've found contentment and inner peace. Mary, Lynette, Pat, and Susan all projected vulnerabilities that made them susceptible to Charles's influence. Nearly all of them had troubled relationships with their families, and Charles validated the anger they felt about their unhappy home lives, telling them they were correct to rebel against their parents. Nearly all of them had self-esteem issues, and Charles told them that they were pretty and desirable. These were women searching for comfort, and Charles gave it. But their attraction to Charles wasn't just about their own weaknesses. It was also about his magnetism. He knew how to turn on the charm, and his followers loved the way he showered them with compliments. Charles was also older than most of these women by a decade. He used his age as an advantage, portraying himself as an experienced sage. It was extra flattering to these women that someone they perceived to be so wise was willing to pay attention to them. Charles's philosophies were not particularly original, but he was so charismatic when spouting out a jumble of ideas drawn from the Bible, Scientology, and Beatles lyrics that people couldn't help but listen. He spoke with a confidence and authority that discouraged anyone from questioning him. Charles also had the self-awareness to hide some of his negative attributes. For example, he was virulently racist, but he did not reveal the extent of his racism to the women in his group. As far as they could tell, Charles's way of life was all about feeling good, letting go of inhibitions, and purging bad feelings. Charles told the women in his thrall that no matter what may have happened to them before, they were special beautiful, and blameless innocence. They loved hearing this, and they loved him. Still, when Charles lost his temper, he became violent. When he wasn't pleased with the women, he might punch them or pull their hair. But like many abusers, he always knew how to sweet-talk them into forgiveness, a classic perpetuation of the cycle of abuse. This was only heightened by their isolation from other relationships and their dependence on him. In the study from Translational Psychiatry Journal, antisocial personality disorder is found in 40 to 70% of prison populations. In Cultic Studies Review, psychologist John Burke notes that many cult leaders fit the diagnostic criteria for antisocial personality disorder. Two of the most recognizable traits of the disorder are the desire to control others and a tendency towards aggression. A cult leader revealed these traits by demanding loyalty from followers and by doling out physical punishments to transgressors. In the same article, Burke described evidence of dependent personality disorder among cult followers. 
These individuals are more likely to exhibit depression, anxiety, and feelings of powerlessness that make them all the more likely to fall under the spell of an authority figure. These dynamics were certainly found within Charles Manson's burgeoning cult. In late 1967, bolstered by his flock of admirers, Charles decided it was time to pursue his larger ambition of becoming a rock star. Mary Bruner gave up her apartment in the Bay Area, and the group decided to move to Los Angeles. Charles packed his followers into a VW minibus and set out to become famous. In Los Angeles, the group stayed in a home known as the Spiral Staircase. The owner of the house enjoyed being surrounded by interesting transients, and he allowed many artists and eccentrics to board there. Here, the group continued to expand. They met 14-year-old Diane Lake, who lived in a nearby commune with her parents. Diane later wrote that becoming part of the Mansons was like a raindrop joining a puddle. I blended in easily, my loneliness disappearing. Charles used his existing followers to draw in more. People were more willing to listen to his ideas when they saw that he was already surrounded by an enraptured crowd. The group swelled to around 20 members, mostly women, and a few men. They increased their numbers in other ways too. Mary Bruner got pregnant, and in April of 1968, gave birth to a son, Valentine Michael Manson. Susan Atkins also became pregnant. She would give birth in the fall of that year. During this same period, the country roiled with discord. Vietnam War protests dominated the news. President Lyndon Johnson announced that he would not seek re-election. The assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. triggered riots in over a hundred cities. But no matter what was happening around him, Charles Manson remained myopically fixated on his own destiny. His plans got an injection of energy when two of his followers met Beach Boys drummer Dennis Wilson in Hollywood. Wilson invited the young women to his house for milk and cookies, and they spent an innocuous afternoon together. After their snack, Wilson excused himself to go to a recording session, and the women left. But Charles was thrilled when he heard about the encounter. He demanded the women show him the way back to Wilson's house. When Wilson returned, he found Charles and his flock partying in his house. Wilson was not one to turn down a good time, so he let them stay. Over the next few days, Wilson let Charles philosophize to him and found some of his ideas profound. Like the women Charles collected, Dennis Wilson struggled with feelings of emptiness and loneliness. He had previously sought meaning and transcendental meditation, but he was open to anyone who might have some answers, and Charles was an expert at convincing people he had wisdom to share. For Charles's followers, Wilson welcoming them into his home was just another example of their leader's magic. Charles told them that he could make good things happen just by envisioning them. He wanted a music career and a famous musician came into his life. In reality, he was just manipulating easy targets like Wilson into giving him the things he wanted. But to Charles's disciples, it really seemed like he was conjuring good fortune out of nothing. 
they saw an almost godlike power, and it only made them cling to Charles more. That summer, Wilson introduced Charles to some of his industry contacts, talent scout Greg Jacobson and producer Terry Melcher. Charles tried to get in their good graces by encouraging them to sleep with their pick of his followers. None of the women objected, as if they had much of a choice. One of Charles's rules, probably borrowed from the pimps, was that each woman had to let go of all her inhibitions and have sex with whomever Charles told her to. If she couldn't do that, he wasn't interested in keeping her around. If any of the women ever wavered, Charles used other pimp tactics. He'd guilt them into obeying, questioning whether they really loved him, while also instilling fear with the threat of a slap or beating. Charles's manipulation tactics worked on both ends. Wilson and his frequent visitors, Greg Jacobson and Terry Melcher, were enticed by the offer of unlimited, rule-free sex. And for the next few weeks, the family became Wilson's semi-permanent guests. Jacobson even flirted with the idea of making a documentary film about the group. While writing up a film proposal, he referred to the group as the family. Charles liked the label and the group adopted it. Charles now had the attention of a wealthy benefactor and several music and film industry contacts. But as the summer of 1968 stretched on, Charles still didn't have what he wanted, a recording contract. Melcher seemed to have the most clout in this area, so Charles kept trying to get closer to him. He knew Melcher lived in a secluded house on Cielo Drive, and he often tried to score an invitation, but Melcher always resisted, keeping him at arm's length. Melcher found Charles off-putting, he wasn't the kind of person who searched for spiritual advice or metaphysical answers, but the gregarious Dennis Wilson introduced Charles to plenty of other less self-assured people who found Charles captivating. Wilson liked to invite all kinds of people to come hang out at his house, even strangers he barely knew. 21-year-old Charles Watson was one of these guests. Watson was thrilled to be welcomed into the home of a famous musician like Dennis Wilson, but he was even more impressed by Charles Manson and his legion of obedient women. The family accepted the young man into their cohort and gave him the nickname Tex. By the end of the summer, Wilson was tired of financially supporting the family. When the lease on his house ended, he moved out and the family had to find new lodgings. But family member Sandy Good had another suggestion for where they could stay. She had a friend who lived on a ranch in Simi Valley. The property had once been used as a set in TV westerns, but it was falling into disrepair. Charles convinced the ranch owner, Charles Spahn, to let his group move there in exchange for helping the old man with cleaning, taking care of horses, and whatever upkeep the property required. And at the sprawling ranch, the family continued to grow. That fall, Charles came up with new, strict rules to keep them in line. For example, he forbade the women from carrying money, he didn't allow them to read books, and he banned watches, clocks, and calendars. But his followers were willing to put up with the rigid policies 
because the family gave them unconditional love and acceptance that they could never find in the harsh outside world. And if they didn't follow Charles's rules, they'd be kicked out of the family, ripped away from that support system. Daily use of drugs like LSD also helped keep them docile. David E. Smith was a physician and addiction expert who founded the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic in Northern California in the 1960s. Smith met Charles Manson and his followers in 1967 while they were in the Bay Area. Two years later, Smith studied the family at Spawn Ranch, and he even wrote a paper on the group in the Journal of Psychedelic Drugs prior to the family's murder spree. In recent years, reflecting on the Manson family, Smith has written that, We now know that drug-infused mind control is a very real phenomenon among susceptible youths. Charles needed to use every tool he had to keep the group's focus and loyalty. By the end of 1968, he began to see ominous signs all around him. His followers noticed the change in him. It had always been a regular ritual for Charles to preach to them through lectures or songs. But that winter, his daily sermons became less about love and more about the violent downfall of civilization. Now, many of his lectures involved a coming race war in which black people would rise up and kill the white population. According to Charles, it was black people's turn to be in power after years of oppression. With these visions of violence, Charles instilled fear in his followers, encouraging them to withdraw further from society and closer to him. The family had already found isolation at Spawn Ranch, 35 miles from downtown Los Angeles, but Charles wanted to retreat even further away from civilization. One of the family members mentioned a place her grandparents owned in Death Valley called the Barker Ranch. Charles thought this sounded like the perfect place to hide out during the coming apocalypse. Diane Lake was afraid. She had joined the family at the age of 14 because she wanted to be treated as an adult. But to her, that meant becoming Charlie's lover, not his warrior. Still, According to Charlie, bloodshed was inevitable, and they had to prepare for it. Diane didn't know what to make of his latest rantings about race wars and uprisings. They were terrifying, to be sure. But Diane was certain that Charlie could protect them from whatever lay ahead. What frightened her more was that Charlie was acting differently. Just a few months earlier, he'd been affectionate and playful, he showed love to all the women, but Diane had believed he loved her best. Now, she no longer felt like a favorite. Charlie had withdrawn. When she tried to bring out that warm side of Charlie, he looked at her with contempt that more and more often erupted into violence and beatings. Only one thing seemed to improve Charlie's mood, the thought of fleeing to the desert. Diane hoped the change of scenery would fix things. After all, if it was what Charlie wanted, it must be the right move. The whole family trekked out to Death Valley in October of 1968 to scope out the property. Charles got permission from the ranch owner to stay there, but he soon realized that the group wasn't prepared for settlement. 
they needed to stockpile food, drugs, knives, and guns in order to make the ranch a suitable fortress. Charles left a few members at the Barker Ranch to keep watch, while the rest of the family returned to Spawn Ranch in Simi Valley. Over the next few months, they started collecting whatever weapons they could get their hands on. They stole dune buggies and motorcycles from car lots and made alterations on the vehicles, adding extra armor and welding on scabbards to hold firearms. Throughout all these preparations, music still dominated Charles's thoughts. If he had any misgivings about his chaotic visions of the future, they were put to rest in November of 1968, when the Beatles released their latest album, featuring their song, Helter Skelter. Charles seemed to think the music was speaking directly to him. All of it confirmed his dark predictions of annihilation. Coming up, We'll talk about Charles's interpretation of the White Album and his increasingly erratic commands to his followers. Now back to the story. After his release from prison in the fall of 1967, 32-year-old Charles Manson used his charismatic personality and his masterful ability to manipulate people to amass a loyal cult following, dubbed the family. But by the fall of 1968, Charles seemed to be steadily losing whatever grip he had on reality. As the group squatted at the Spawn Ranch in Simi Valley, Charles lectured his disciples about the apocalypse and the family made preparations for the coming race wars. Charles said that the black population would rise up to kill or enslave the white race. Charles told his followers that he planned to take them into a desert where they would crawl into a hole and hide from the violence. During that time, he said, black people would hold all the power. But Charles, a white supremacist, didn't think black people would be capable of ruling the world. So, he predicted, once they realized they did not have the skills to lead, the family could emerge from hiding and be recognized as the rightful rulers of the planet. Shared delusions are rare, but when a shared delusional disorder does occur, it usually happens among people who live close together, often in isolation and with an intimate emotional connection. Dr. Ernest Charles Lezeg was the first to identify the phenomenon he labeled folia due, which translates to the madness shared by two and folia famille or the madness shared by the family. Dr. Lezeg said that the inducer creates delusions and imposes them on a passive individual who is not necessarily psychotic themselves, but who is overly trusting and naive. The family accepted Charles's prophecy not only because they deferred to his word on everything, but Charles also seemed to have proof. He pointed to the Beatles' release of the White Album in November of 1968. Charles said the lyrics and song titles confirmed everything he predicted about the future. Blackbird was about black people rising against oppression. Piggies referred to the corrupt people in power who deserved the extermination coming to them. Helter Skelter was the term for the chaotic events that would ignite the race war and signal the end of the world. Beyond searching for greater truths and prophecies in the White Album, 
Charles thought that the songs gave him more immediate, practical advice. In the song, I Will, Charles took the lyrics, Your song will fill the air, sing it loud so I can hear you, to mean that he should not give up on his goal of becoming a musician. Charles had kept up his relationship with music producer Terry Melcher as best he could. Melcher wasn't interested in indulging Charles's musical ambitions, but he enjoyed visiting the women at Spawn Ranch, and he recognized that even if Charles's talents as a musician were middling, there was something compelling about him that might warrant a closer look. So in March of 1969, Melcher agreed to come out to Spawn Ranch to hear Charles play. Charles was fanatical in the days leading up to the visit. He and the women he chose as backup singers rehearsed endlessly. He had them perform a strip show to accompany the music. Charles usually taught his disciples not to care about clothes or personal appearances. But before Melcher's arrival, he instructed his followers to buy material and hand sew him a fringed buckskin suit. The family cleaned the ranch the best they could. Normally, the family scrounged up meals from the dumpsters of grocery stores, taking home any misshapen produce or food past the sell-by date they could find in the trash. But for Melcher, Charles had the women whip up fresh-baked goods and treats. The group eagerly anticipated Melcher's arrival, but on the agreed-upon date, Melcher didn't show. Charles was furious. In addition to his antisocial behavior, he often demonstrated traits of typical narcissism, including a fear of losing face. Licensed counselor Suzanne Deggs-White stated that a narcissist is not able to tolerate any kind of public humiliation. Their egos can't handle the prospect of failure. For the next few weeks, Charles pulled away from the rest of the group and went on walks alone in the wilderness. He had taught his followers to believe he was infallible. He hated for them to see him stumble. If they started to doubt his ability to become a great musician, they might begin to doubt everything, and then they might leave him. Charles couldn't bear the thought. In addition to Melcher's blow, a month later, police raided the Spawn Ranch. They'd been tipped off that the group was in possession of stolen vehicles. Some of the family members were arrested. The charges were dropped within days because police couldn't prove who had committed the thefts. Even so, Charles was rattled by the thought of the law interfering with his family. A few days after the raid, family member Tex Watson had a powerful negative reaction to some hallucinogenic belladonna root. During this episode, he wandered around Van Nuys, sometimes crawling on his hands and knees and emitting high-pitched beeps until police arrested him for public intoxication. When he returned to Spawn Ranch after his release, the other members of the family noted that he seemed different. The 21-year-old had been a friendly, mellow addition to the group. After his bad trip, he became snappish and edgy. Some studies indicate that hallucinogens can cause long-term or even permanent personality changes. 
However, most people reported positive changes, such as decreased anxiety. But Tex felt like the drugs made him paranoid and destructive. After the succession of dark events, the family was granted a new ray of hope. Terry Melcher made another promise to come and see Charles perform. On May 18, 1969, Melcher came to Spawn Ranch. Charles put on the best show he could. Melcher listened politely. After it was over, he gave Charles the name of a friend who recorded tribal music. He thought the friend might find Charles's music more interesting. Then he handed Charles $50 and left. The audition was over. It wasn't exactly a brush off, but it wasn't a recording contract either. Still, Charles would not give his followers any reason to doubt his success. To save face, he told them that the $50 was a signing bonus rather than the act of charity it likely was. But the rejection clearly stung and Charles's moods turned darker. He began to contemplate how he might take revenge on Melcher. It was also around this time that Charles sent his followers on excursions he called creepy crawling. Dressed in black, the family snuck into random houses late at night while the occupants slept. There, they would misplace items and rearrange the furniture. It was a power trip, thinking about how the homeowners would wake up and realize the intrusion had taken place without them knowing. Charles did not direct the group to commit acts of violence during these creepy crawling missions, but he did ask them to carry knives at all times. These missions were all part of the group's training. He wanted them to overcome their fears of getting caught and to learn to move around silently and without detection. This would be important, he told them, once Helter Skelter began. They also started preparing to return to Barker Ranch in Death Valley. But Charles was still worried about a food and weapon shortage. They needed to raise some fast cash. Tex Watson had a plan to do so. He would pretend to be a drug dealer and arrange to sell 25 kilos of marijuana to a prospective buyer. Tex didn't actually have the drugs, but he had a buyer willing to give him the money up front. Tex figured he could get the money and then disappear before the buyer realized he'd been cheated. But the buyer, who went by the nickname Lots of Papa, easily traced Tex back to the Spawn Ranch and the family. When Lots of Papa called, demanding his drugs, Charles told him that he didn't know where Tex was. Lots of Papa replied that he was a member of the Black Panthers, and if he didn't get his drugs or his money back, he and his comrades would come to the Spawn Ranch and murder the family. Lots of Papa wasn't actually a Black Panther, but Charles believed the threat. He asked one of the male members of the family, Thomas T.J. Walliman, to accompany him to Lots of Papa's apartment. Charles grabbed a 22 caliber revolver to take with them and gave T.J. specific instructions. Charles would stuff the gun in the back of his pants and T.J. would enter the apartment behind him. When Charles gave the signal, he expected T.J. to grab the gun and shoot Lots of Papa. Once they were in the apartment, 
TJ locked eyes with Charlie. He knew that he was supposed to grab the gun, but he couldn't help hesitating. He thought lots of Papa would be alone. Instead, he had two guys with him. TJ liked things to be simple, and here, things were becoming complicated. But Charlie wasn't phased by the extra men. He ignored them and nodded at TJ, the signal for him to shoot. TJ's hand twitched. He knew that when Charlie gave an order, he had to obey. That was the deal he'd signed up for when he joined the family. He had surrendered his individual to the greater whole. He truly believed that he was no longer his own person and that his body was under Charlie's control. When Charlie willed him to shoot, TJ expected his body to comply. But to TJ's horror, he didn't shoot. He froze. When TJ failed to shoot lots of Papa, Charlie grabbed the gun himself and shot the drug dealer in the chest. Lots of Papa collapsed as TJ and Charles fled. They returned to Spawn Ranch where Charles bragged to everyone that he'd just taken down a Black Panther. He explained that he had done it for their sakes to protect them. Meanwhile, TJ was so terrified by his failure to obey Charles that he fled the ranch, fearing for his life. It was a signal to all of them. Charlie had shown them what it meant to be a member of the family. If they wanted to remain part of the group, they had to be ready to kill. In the coming weeks, many of them would prove how ready they were to comply. Thanks again for tuning into our Crimes of Passion Summer of 69 special. We will be back Wednesday with part two of the Manson family story. We'll discuss the infamous murders that took place on August 8th and 9th, 1969, as well as the police investigations and trials that followed. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, The Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. Be sure to check it out on our new Podcast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. Crimes of Passion is written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs. 